Well, like fruit on a vine, there are ways that you show that you are, in fact, connected to Christ and that you have his life in you. We're going to be talking more about that. So if you have a Bible, you'll want to look in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in the 12th chapter, Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Most of you know that uh, before we gather for worship every week, there are a number of you that uh, join me for prayer. And uh, for the last few weeks, as we have gathered to pray and you said, "Okay, how should we pray? What are we going to pray about today? I've said something like this. Well, it's going to be a very hard subject. So (laughs) pray that we can address the hard subject because we've talked about condemnation and hell and we've talked about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and unpardonable sins and all kinds of things like that. And so. Uh, as we gathered to pray this morning, there was a little bit of this look like, okay, so what are we going to be praying for today? And it's not quite so hard of a subject today, but it is life and death. Very serious and very urgent. And so I hope that uh, you'll kind of tune your heart into some things I think God wants to say to all of us. And we'll do so by looking at the scriptures together. Today we are concluding a series of talks that I've been giving you along the lines of having our life in alignment with Christ. And we began this whole series uh, saying if you're going to have alignment with Christ, you've got to have it clearly in your own mind. What does it mean for him to be Messiah? What's it mean for him to be the Christ? And we began all that by talking about kind of the double take that John the Baptist and some others had done because Jesus was outside of their box. He was outside of their picture of what a Messiah would be and how it behooves all of us to not put Jesus in a box, but allow him to define what's it mean for him to be our Savior, to be the Lord. And we've been clarifying that over these weeks. Then we began to uh, see how Jesus spoke to Some cities in which he had been very active. He had done a lot of miracles. He had manifested the presence of God in an unbelievable, remarkable kind of way. And he said, you know what? If some cities in the past, like Sodom, like Tyre and Sidon, had had the manifestation of God that you've had, they all would have repented. And yet you still have not. And so he spoke these woes, these condemnations. To Bethsaida and Capernaum and Chorazin, where he had done so many miraculous things. Because they did not bring their lives into alignment with him. And then uh, we got into, uh, you know, Jesus saying, I'm the one that really clarifies what the issues are around here. I know that you have taken the law of God and you've added a hundred things to it. But I'm here to clarify what it's all about. I'm I'm the one that's going to tell you what Sabbath keeping and Sabbath breaking looks like. I'm the one that's going to tell you what it means to honor God first, what it means to have idols in your life, what it means to be a truth teller or a false speaker and so on like that. He's the one that brings the clarity to issues. And unless you allow him to define the issues of life, you're not in alignment with him. And then last time. He said, now here's the good news. Every sin known to man can be forgiven. Even if you blaspheme against the Father, if you blaspheme against the Son, you can be forgiven for that. But you cannot be forgiven for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It is an unpardonable sin. And that's where we were last time. And if you missed that and you want to know more about it, be sure you get the CD. 
But in short, we tried to bring clarification and definition to what's that mean, what's that look like to commit the unpardonable sin. And it's this, it's an act of resistance which belittles and insults the Holy Spirit so that he withdraws forever his convincing power so that we are rendered unable to repent and be forgiven. And the thing we try to clarify is that you and I are so depraved, we are so broken and busted, there is not one little ounce of inclination in us to turn to God, to repent from our own stuff, except for the Holy Spirit to stir that in us and to inspire and point us in the direction of Christ. If the Holy Spirit doesn't do that work in us, we've got no hope. And when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you close the door on the Holy Spirit and He will not work in your life in that kind of way. And it's, it's a hopeless situation. So, it kind of raises the question then, as we get into today's text, and we're going to pick it up in verse 33. Have I committed an unpardonable sin? Is it, is it possible that I would have blasphemed and resisted and disrespected the Holy Spirit so that... I am at a hopeless place and, and destined to a, a, an eternity of separation? Is it possible that my life is so out of alignment with Jesus, having not looked to Him as the clarifier of all of life's issues, as the Messiah who gets to call all the shots? Is it possible that as it stands today, if life were over, I would miss God and miss heaven forever? Is that, is that possible? Am I a Christian? Am I in alignment with Jesus? How do you answer those for yourself? Is it a very clear, convicted, um, kind of convinced place in your own heart? Yes. I know I'm a follower of Jesus. Yes, I know that I belong to Him. Yes, I know that my destination is heaven someday when I die. I am in alignment with Him. Well, you go, well, I, I hope so. I, I think so. I, 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 I'm kind of inclined in that direction. But how can anyone know? Well, Jesus said you can know. There are evidences. Kind of like fruit on the vine of a tree. That show you belong to me. And the first one that he's going to point out is the evidence of words. I'll tell you, in North America, we have little concept of what a big deal words are. We play around with words. We, we throw out words. We throw away words. We're careless with words. And the Bible affirms that words are extremely important. Let me just give you a little context for that. How did this world and your life get created? Just go all the way back to creation, and we're reminded that God chose to create by using words. Out of nothing, He spoke into that nothingness. And created a universe and this world and solar system in which we live and our lives and all the other kind of life that's on this planet. 
That's the power and that's the significance of words. And then when God wanted to bless us, affirm us, uh, bring good things to us, He'd speak those into our lives. And when He wanted to correct us and reprove us and retrain us, He would speak those things into our lives. And He's used a variety of things to speak into this world. And people are some of those things, and prophets, and priests, etc., And then he's given us scriptures, which is known as what? The word of God. And then ultimately, he incarnated himself. He who was spirit became flesh. And the scriptures tell us that whole transaction of God becoming one of us was when the word became flesh. Jesus is the word of God. And it's for this reason, the Word is so much a part of who He is, it's such an expression of His personhood that He gives us commandments like don't lie, don't gossip, don't slander, don't profane, because the words are reflective of the person. He says, I'm not a liar, I can never lie, and therefore to speak truth is reflective of who I am. He can never gossip. He can never slander because it's inconsistent with who he is. Now, fast forward. When he said, I'm going to make man, he said, how? I'm going to make man in my image. And so similarly, words are as big a deal to us as they are to God because they are reflective of who we are. So when he says to us, don't lie. That's because his intent is that our character will be like his character. He's a truth person. We will be truth people and lie will not be a part of us. Gossip will not be a part of us. Slander will not be a part of us. Uh, Condemning and condescending and uh, injurious kinds of words will not be a part of us. And so he says, here's one of the evidences Here's one of the ways that you know that you're mine, that you're connected to me, that you're in alignment with me. Your words. How do you speak? How do you talk? Now, again, let me just take it a little further because this is such a big deal. Let's say that I'm an apple tree. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, Scott, but all apple trees go to hell. The only way you go to heaven is that you're a peach tree. And so let's say that I go, well, I want to go to heaven, so I'm going to try as hard as I can to be a peach tree. Try as I may, I will never be a peach tree because I'm an apple tree. The only hope I have then is for God to touch my life in such a transforming way is that I become an altogether different tree. And his touch and his transforming work in me move me from being an apple tree to a peach tree. And being a peach tree is in an alignment with him and what he wants me to be. You go, well, how do you know you're a peach tree? Well, then I began to have peaches. I began to have a fruit that demonstrates that is who I truly am in this new life that I have. Now, to make that a little more real, the Scott... Life is not and will never be 
good enough. I cannot try hard enough to bring my life in alignment with God and to have His promises fulfilled in me. I just can't do it. It's impossible. The only hope I have is that God would so touch me and transform me that I would no longer have the Scott life, but now I would have the Christ life. And if he did that transforming work in me, you say, well, then how would you know? There would be a fruit that is Christ-like to come out of me, like words. And my words, like his words, would have power to bless, to heal, to cast hope, to, to call people unto a closeness to God. Now, if my words are, in fact, something else, and they condemn, and they ridicule, and they injure, and they hurt, and they wound, and so on like that, that is a strong indicator. I may not be connected to the tree of life. I may not have had that transformation take place in my life. So let's look at the text to see exactly how Jesus put that, picking up in chapter 12, verse 33. Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, I can't emphasize this enough. By your words you will be justified. That doesn't mean, well, I better clean up my language. I better work really, really hard on my behavior and how I talk. It is way more substantive than that superficial kind of thought. I only have the capacity to have the words of God in my heart and in my life if I have been transformed by him and given my life to him. To not have done that means I do not have the words of life in me. The words of life cannot, therefore, come out of me. And I am in that hopeless state. And what's more, if I'm in a hopeless state and I die without Christ, not only am I condemned forever, but the level of retribution I pay in hell is directly tied to my words. So I can not only miss heaven forever and and have hell forever, but I can have hell worse than a lot of other people have hell, depending on how I behaved and how I talked. It's huge. And so it begs the question, do I have Christ in my life and is that evidenced? By the way, his word is at work in me and his word comes out of me. Friends, if I'm sloppy and careless and thoughtless 
in handling his word and in using and speaking his word, I may not have his life in me. Because it's it's inconsistent that he would be in me and his words not reflect that. There's more. As we get ready to continue the verses, he says, here's another evidence that you know that you're mine. Not only in the words that come out of you, but the faith that is exhibited by you. Now, notice in the text that we're going to read, these that were his hearers that day, scribes and Pharisees, come along and say, okay, okay, okay. So you say you want these evidences in us. How about you give us an evidence? How about you give us a sign? Show us just one thing that really proves that you're the Christ, that you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? After all that I have done, after all these exorcisms and healings and miraculous feedings, etc., you want another sign? Uh, He got a little bothered with that. Let's pick it up. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So real quickly, we'll unpack that. Okay, you might be who you're saying you be. Just, just give us one little indicator. And Jesus said, you know what? You've had all the indicators you're going to get. The only thing left that will happen for your sake or anybody else's sake is the sign of Jonah. And as you know, that story, Jonah was swallowed by the great fish three days and three nights. He was in the belly of this fish, and then he was uh, spit forth on the shore. He said, that's the way it's going to be for the Messiah, for the Son of Man. I will die. I'll spend three days and three nights in in the heart of the earth buried and then on the third day i'll come forth and resurrect that's that's the only sign left that's going to happen for your sake or anybody else's sake and now notice what else he goes on to say you know what jonah's activity with god was sufficient for all those pagan godless ninevites Those cruel, evil, wicked Ninevites. And I don't have time to give you all the history, but they they were. It, It was sufficient for them to repent. They repented, and you won't? Even when the queen of Sheba, who came on her little testing tour and and inquired of Solomon and the things of God through Solomon's, even she repented and turned around at what she experienced. And you won't? No, there'll be no more signs. So here's the evidence, friends. You're no longer looking for Jesus to prove himself to you. You're no longer putting a little test out there. Oh, you know, Lord, if you really want this or that, will you? 
He's already done all He's going to do. And your response is faith. Yes, Lord, I believe You, and I will order my life in light of who You are and what You want. Are you a faithful follower of Christ? Friends, if you are not full of faith and making life decisions in light of faith, you need a serious heart check about whether you are connected to the tree of life. Because that fruit will be there if you are. That evidence. And then the next thing he says in terms of of that kind of evidence is that your heart will not be susceptible to all kinds of sin and depravity. Your heart will be guarded. And here's how he gets at that with a little parable he speaks in verse 43. So he said, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through water, waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. If, if you've turned to God and you've begun to exercise faith and He begins to clean house and things that are a part of depravity and brokenness and, and sin are, are beginning to be cleaned out of your life, then it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, well, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. If you do not have a connection with Christ and the tree of life is not flowing through you, then you will go through this roller coaster thing of, uh, I do a lot better for a while, and then I'm just right back to where I was. And then I do better for a while, and then I'm right back to where And I do better for a while, and now it's even worse. And I, I, I'm caught up in the stuff even in a more captivated kind of way. If that's going on, friend, you need to seriously question if you have his life in you. The rest of the story is if you do have his life in you, then by his spirit, you begin to post a sentry at the door of your heart. There's a guard there that will not readily allow this junk to come in and to take residence in your heart. And then the final evidence that he speaks of begins in verse 46. And you see that evidence lived out in obedience. Speaking of Jesus, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Who is his mother and his brothers? But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Friends, we've just had family redefined. A family is important. And there's all kinds of biblical admonitions about the kind of commitment that you must have to your spouse, to your children, to your parents, etc. 
But there is a relationship and there is an allegiance that's higher and first before your family. And that is your relationship with God and the people of God. And so in his redefinition of family, he says, here's here's whose family here is who is in alignment with me and has the life of God flowing in him. He's the one that obeys what the father says to do. uh, Friends, how does obedience play out in your life? Just take a quick, quick survey. Within your own family, how does that obedience get played out? The scriptures admonish spouses to grow in understanding of one another so that you love one another, not out of your own preferences, but you love one another out of an understanding of the other. So that you love your spouse in the way your spouse needs to be loved. So that you live with your children in such a way that they are instructed in the things of God and their hearts are shaped toward the things of God and not exasperated by your own proclivities. Is this the way your family situation looks? Take a look at your work life. Your work is not about you making a living, says the Scriptures. Your work is irrelevant whether you like your boss or like your colleagues or like the task that you have at hand. That's All that stuff's irrelevant. What matters is that you are God's man or you are God's woman in that work arena and you are doing His bidding and carrying out His will and you are on mission in that context. Getting to make a living is a secondary issue. Getting to have a sense of fulfillment by what you do is a secondary issue. Enjoying the camaraderie of those with whom you work is a secondary issue. The primary issue is that you are God's person in that place. Carrying out and fulfilling his mission as his ambassador. Is that your work situation? That's why you don't take just any old promotion that comes. That's why you don't leap from just one company to another company at any old time. It seems advantageous to you. It's all God directed. What about your experience of church? You know, church is not a building. Church is people. We are church. And the the scriptures are filled with admonitions about how we do life with each other and how we do mission for him with each other. And what kind of commitment that takes for us toward one another and sacrifice toward one another. Is that your experience of church? I could go on and on, but that's just a brief survey to say, what's the obedience thing look like in you? If it is this kind of half-hearted, sloppy thing in your life, friend, you need to have a heart check and see, do I really have his life flowing and coursing through me? Because if I do, it will express itself with words. It will express itself with faith. It will express itself with a guarded heart. It will express itself with obedience. And if I don't have those evidences, friends, I'm in trouble. And I need to figure something out. Now, here's the thing that I didn't want us to miss. In every one of those little evidential 
pericopes, those little pictures of evidence. Jesus said, the one that doesn't have that evidence is evil. You see that? You read that through the text? Friends, we don't have a biblical definition of evil by the way we typically live in America. Evil in our mind is the, you know, Adolf Hitler, the axe murderers, the child molesters, all that kind of stuff. And they are. But here's the biblical definition of evil. It is anyone and anything that is not in alignment with God. You say, well, how can you say that? I'm a good person. I know a lot of very good people, and, and God's not even a part of their life. No, you don't. Not by biblical definition. Because the standard for goodness is not up to us. We don't get to decide that's good and that's evil. The standard for goodness is God Himself. And He says, only I am good. And only that which is connected to me and in alignment with me is good. And every single thing that's not is evil. And so in every instance, every little evidential paragraph we were looking at there, he said, it's an evil generation that will not follow me and will be condemned forever apart from me. My friend, I've I got to get that in my mind. I, that definition has to take root in my soul as it does yours. Because, frankly, my behavior is a lot better than a lot of other people. And God says, wonderful, <laughs> evil. Unless you're in alignment with me. Unless you have my life flowing through you. And so it begs the question, it brings us to this point. Do you? Do you repent? Do you stop trying to go life your own way, with your own definitions, with your own issues, and, and your own uh, connotations for what life should be about and how life is evaluated, stop it. Repent and go in His way and in His will. Listen, the Bible says the best, the best you can do or I can do that we can perform is like filthy rags to Him. We've got no goodness. We are outside of Christ, wicked and depraved and broken and busted. And he says, your only hope is to stop going that direction, no matter how much you powder it up and make it look pretty, and go with me. Will you confess your sins? Will you agree with him? This little, this little selfish proclivity that I have, this little you know, thing that I do for self and I don't do it for my spouse or I don't do it for my kids or I don't do it for others. And so on. He says, that's not a little proclivity. It's sin. 
It separates you from me. Will you confess those things? Will you give those things up to me and come to me? Will you receive forgiveness? Friends, he's a holy, righteous God. You cannot come close to him as an unholy, unrighteous person. Your only hope is to have forgiveness and have your life cleansed. And that only comes by your repentance and the atoning work of Jesus over your repentance. And will you receive life? You take on His life and it begins to flow through you with these various fruits or evidences. Like your words and faith and a guarded heart and obedience. So, like I said, this isn't hard to understand. But it is very serious. It is life and death. And this hour, friends, frankly, has been about God doing some clarifying work in some of us. And if you have it more clear today, and you have to honestly say, I've had some religion. Listen, who who is he talking to? Scribes and Pharisees most religious people on the planet. Behaviorally, nobody could come close to these guys. They were the good guys. And he said, no, no, you're a brood of vipers. You are sin sick and you don't even know it. The bad news is how much we need him. The good news is how much he is there for us. Will you bow with me and let's pray? So, Lord, we hear an invitation right now to repent, to turn to you and confess, to allow you to touch and forgive and give life. And we pray for our friend today who's in that realization right now. They know they're busted and they need you. We pray that you would come by their invitation into the heart and do the transforming work. In Jesus' name, amen.